It's time for Vax Talk. Let's talk VPDs. We're shaping the conversation about vaccines. To learn more, visit VaxTalk.org. Hello, and welcome to Vax Talk. This is the podcast for people who have been Googling Is there a wait list for COVID 19 vaccines? <laughs> Not Dr. Boonstra, of course. I I don't have to Google that. (laughs) He has had his vaccine. I did. So this is also a uh, podcast for the very model of Moderna individuals. (laughs) How about Vivek Murthy? And Pfizer individuals. (laughs) What if Vivek Murthy got his, uh, or Jerome Adams got the Moderna vaccines? What what would they be? then then, Then he'd be the very model of a Moderna Surgeon General. Like how I I queued that up just for you. I'm Karen Ernst. I'm the executive director of Voices for Vaccines. I'm Nathan Boonstra, general pediatrician here at Blank Children's Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa. So we are joining you after we recorded my interview with Dr. Plotkin Mm -hmm. that uh, Nathan hasn't heard yet, but he's going to be blown away at how great it is. I'm excited. And um, a day after there was... uh, attempted insurrection at the United States Capitol. Yeah, things are happening. (laughs) There are things happening. And so if you don't mind, I'd like to go into my about the web because it is related. Okay, go to it. At the, so before people stormed into the Capitol, um, which was completely unexpected for an event called Storm the Capitol. um, Right. Before that happened. Who could have guessed? Uh, there was sort of a protest festival kind of atmosphere going on. And one of the side stages was the anti-vaxxers. And they really didn't get, <laughs> yeah, you didn't know that, huh? No, this is new to me. Oh, I like this. This is interesting. They really didn't get a whole lot of attention, mm. um, you know, for obvious reasons, right? Yeah. But but whenever there is sort of um, anything with the word freedom or mm-hmm. anything attached to it, they'll be there. And um, they were advocating for misinformation about vaccines. Um, Naturally. Which, I mean, my end point to this is going to be that disinformation shared online will always have bad real life consequences. Mm-hmm. And, it, and, you, and it's everyone's duty to disavow it and to correct it. Um, but there was one person who was there named Denise Aguilar. Okay. Um, she goes by the Informed Mama and also Freedom Angels. So she was at the side stage. Um, I, I want to highlight her because she posted a photo of herself and her children and I believe her boyfriend um, with guns standing in some sort of creepy field like a children of the corn thing or something mm-hmm. um so the the kids are holding guns she's holding a gun her boyfriend's holding a gun mm. and the caption is train them early so they understand and respect their weapon we will protect ours by any and all means necessary um and then she posted a video yesterday after and I, and I kind of toyed with the idea of putting the audio on here, but I am not going to because yeah. I just don't want to give it a big platform. But she posted a video yesterday talking about um, how the revolution is happening and the revolution is here and it's a war, 
But the people who were being violent were not these so-called patriots. It wasn't mm-hmm. her, her faction. It was someone else. Right. <laughs> which is baloney. She's been calling for weeks for violence. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and, and then the other part of this is that pharmacist in Wisconsin who left, you know, 500 doses of vaccines out on purpose to spoil and ruin them. Mm-hmm. And the anti-vaccine sentiment about that was, uh, it wasn't us. He's a plant. Right. He was put there on purpose. And then he went to court and said, yeah, it's because I'm against vaccines. Yeah. So <laughs> um, start taking this seriously, everybody in the world. Th- these yeah. people are not playing around. They're telling you exactly what they mean to do. It's not mm-hmm. cute online disinformation. It's stuff that has real world consequences, whether that's a measles outbreak whether that's a baby dying from pertussis, whether mm-hmm. that's people dying in droves from COVID-19, or if it's people violently breaching the Capitol and threatening the lives of our public servants. It's yeah. always dangerous. And we've seen this evolution over time. We have watched as the anti-vaccine, what, I, what I've always said is the anti-vaccine movement lacking scientific support lacking public support largely mm-hmm. is willing to ally itself with in in a desire for numbers they're willing to ally themselves with any group no matter how heinous and so we saw that in california with uh cozying up to um kind of militant groups when a lot of the um bills were being passed in california we've seen that now you know with with what you're describing we're seeing a lot more of that kind of language and imagery going on with the anti-vaccine movement as they kind of just cozy up to groups that are more dangerous and it's a little bit scary. So, and and as I've always said, you know, the anti-vaccine movement was already kind of a microcosm for what we're seeing today in America, that we started to see misinformation spread in generally the same ways. We started to see people idolized in the same way that we see today when we go back 10 years in the anti-vaccine movement. It's really an interesting um, kind of prognosticator of, of what we're seeing. So absolutely. Uh, I think it's very important when we talk about what we can do that deplatforming people that provide false information that is dangerous is one of the most important things that we can be doing right now. Absolutely. And you know, I don't know if you follow Brandy Zadrozny on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Yep. She has become um, a favorite punching bag of the far, far right. Yeah. W- which is ridiculous because I, I have been interviewed by her. She is thorough and thoughtful and and doesn't just report whatever she feels like reporting it. it there has to be there has mm-hmm. to be proof behind anything she's saying. But, you know, she she had a tweet yesterday saying they've been saying they would do this for years, years, mm-hmm. threatening a second civil war and violence. And no one listened because it was just online. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, uh, you know, you and I have been throwing up flares being like, hey, pay attention to this. Um mm-hmm. 
lawmakers just kind of brush either brush us off or cozy up to them yep. like yeah i'm not really anti-vaccine but you know this whole like i have the freedom to make kids sick with measles thing is up my alley so i'm gonna align myself with them um it, it's i mean and i don't think anything's gonna change on that front to be honest with you P- partially because right. at the at that rally the anti-vaxxers were a side stage. They weren't getting much attention. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are kind of the wind at the back of all sorts of disinformation because the very worst and most talented grifters are the ones who make it to the anti-vaccine movement. Well, and just to watch how the anti-vaccine grifters have adapted their strategy to, uh, you know, incorporate all the other Mm -hmm. grifting that can be done so you know we've seen anti-vaccine groups morph into a full-on more health freedom groups and they're doing more than just advocating for uh you know misinformation about vaccines they're now just anything health related they're trying to protest and then and and trying to get laws changed and all these kinds of things and we're starting to see those change and then like i said just blending into these other groups um, yep, mm-hmm. I, I think that's a trend we can count on for the foreseeable future. Sadly, I think you're right. So that was my around the web. <laughs> <laughs> well, mine is a little bit more nuts and bolts because I want to talk a little bit about getting um, my own COVID vaccine. So, and I want to talk about one piece of misinformation that I've run into and, and frame that in terms of my experience. So I got my first dose of Moderna vaccine uh, 10 days ago. I had a sore arm, I would say decently sore the second day. It was definitely more sore than I would uh, think of when I think of my flu shot, which usually doesn't bother me too much. But this was this was achy. Uh, by the evening, though, it, things had improved, and I was able to shovel snow, and it was fine. Um, the... Uh, by the next day, I really, I couldn't even tell that I'd gotten the shot unless I push on the site and I haven't had any fever, nothing to speak of interesting as far as side effects from the shot whatsoever. So the thing that I wanted to talk about is actually something that's been kind of circulating on some of the anti-vaccine sli- uh, sites. And it is a graphic from, it's like a clip from a report from the CDC that looked at this V-safe um, web tool that when you get your vaccine, you're provided with information as to how to access this, uh, which is kind of a symptom monitor that the CDC does. They text you, they have you um, log in, and then they get your daily information on how you're feeling after getting your vaccine to monitor for side effects. So the piece of information that I've seen out there is this clip from a report that looked at the first about 100,000 doses of COVID vaccine and looked at how many health impacts were recorded on this V-Safe program. And out of about 112,000, they had recorded about 3,150 health impact events, which the definition of health impact event in this graphic that's circulating is that the person that it that that it means they were unable to perform normal daily activities unable to work or required care from a doctor or healthcare professional so the message that's being sent with this is oh my gosh three percent of people who got this vaccine were unable to work or do daily activities and i want to break that down because that's not at all really what's going on with this with this with these kind of numbers so when you get when you sign up for vsafe 
every day CDC sends this automated text, you click it, and then it asks you questions about how you're feeling. First it asks, how are just how are you feeling today? And there's three options to choose from. Have you had a fever today? Have you had any of the symptoms of pain, redness, swelling, or itching? Would you consider them mild, moderate, or severe? And then it asks you uh, if you've had any, any of your symptoms or health conditions that you reported, did it cause you to either be unable to work, do your normal daily activities, or get care from a doctor or healthcare professional? And I forgot to mention, I skipped over one, but they ask you a bunch of other symptoms too. Chills, headaches, joint pains, muscle, body aches, et cetera. And then add, you can add in anything else. Um, so the reality is that it's very common for a vaccine to give somebody a fever. It's very common for it to cause um, soreness at the site. It's common to have a sore arm. Any of those things, especially in the era of COVID, if you get a temp of 100 or more, chances are you're not going to work. You're not going to be able to work. If I had had a temp of 100, I would have clicked, I'm unable to work because of this vaccine, because I can't go into work with a fever. It doesn't mean that I've had a serious or significant like life uh, threatening event from this vaccine. And I would argue 3% of people only 3% of people being impacted that way is not too bad. And also, if you just have a really sore arm, that can impact your daily activity. And it, like I said, you know, it was really sore in the afternoon, but then by the evening, it was fine. Um, but if you're in a job or you have a lot of activities that involve lifting, sure, that could impact that. You might click in your vSafe program that that impacted your ability to do to do daily tasks. Or if you went to the doctor because you had that fever, you'd click that. So really, that's pretty much a big catch-all just to catch even minor events. And so if you see that circulating or some kind of idea that 3% of people are being really, you know, significantly knocked down by this vaccine, that's just not the case. Uh, I was, I, I had been wondering about that because I had seen that going around too. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's disappointing that yeah. our efforts, well, it's not, it's not, I mean, it's disappointing, but it's not shocking that our efforts to monitor the safety of this new vaccine are being used against us. And yeah. Well, I mean, that's kind of been true with anything uh, when it comes to vaccine safety yeah. and one of those uh, arguments where it really doesn't matter how many studies you do on a topic, the anti-vaccine movement is going to try to twist it and mislead with it. Um, so a good um, argument for sticking to where the science leads, mm -hmm. not trying to cater to the whims of the anti-vaccine movement and whatever their like boogeyman of the day is. So I just want to put a little cap on that. Um, that's why we call them the anti-vaccine movement. Um, we're mm -hmm. not talking about parents who come in and, and are a little bit concerned about an HPV vaccine or maybe are convinced that the ingredients and in vaccines are bad and, and don't want them. We're talking about these grifters and <laughs> purveyors of disinformation who, um, who profit or accumulate power or notoriety because of their activities. Uh, and so... I, I, I every, every once, every six months, I like to say on this podcast that when we say anti-vaccine, we're talking about some pretty bad people. Um, mm -hmm. And I, you know, just I, the, what prompted me to say that was Andy Slavitt tweeted a few weeks ago that he's never going to use the word anti-vaccine, but we are. Yeah. And I think we should be 
cautious about it. I think we should be selective about it. But I also think that it's important to point out um, just as kind of what we were saying before, if we ignore the kind of evolution here of the anti-vaccine movement, it's at our peril. So, you know, we need to point this out and what they are doing in the same way that we need to point out um, how there are, you know, people are planning to go storm the Capitol online. Like that's not just concerned people. That's a whole other thing. Mm -hmm. And the same is true about uh, the anti-vaccine movement. Um, I generally keep with the definition of if, if you believe that vaccines as recommended are more dangerous than they are beneficial. And if you also then use, you know, try to convince others of that using poor, you know, using misinformation or disinformation, that's my definition of anti-vaccine. I don't, I don't, I try very hard not to use it on just anybody who has questions about vaccines or even necessarily anybody who refuses vaccines. Mm -hmm. I don't I, I don't try I try not to lump all of those groups together no it's it's true there's there's a lot of different groups of people there's no homogenous anything but um, anti-vaxxers are real and they're a real threat well we're going to turn to something sort of delightful and wonderful now and that's our interview with uh, vaccine hero and inventor of several vaccines uh, Dr. Stanley Plotkin which Nathan hasn't heard mm -hmm. so he has to listen to our podcast yeah. this morning. So stick around with me. And now we have Dr. Stanley Plotkin joining us. Uh, Dr. Plotkin or whom I call Stanley because he's uh, such a wonderful supporter of Voices for Vaccines, is a, the inventor of the rubella vaccine, a co-inventor of the rotavirus vaccine, has been writing the ultimate vaccines books called Vaccines, which is approximately 40,000 pages long uh, for years, and is uh, an all-around vaccine hero and a wonderful person. So welcome, Dr. Plotkin. Oh, thank you for that introduction. You bet. My first question is, I'm wondering if you have received a COVID-19 vaccine yet. No, I have not. And uh, although, of course, um, I have personal reasons for receiving it, what is regrettable is the chaos uh, regarding um, uh, dissemination of, of the virus and the, of course the fundamental problem is that we have 50 different governments and each one is behaving differently so I don't know when I will receive the vaccine um, but uh, I hope it will be soon. I hope so too. So I know that I know that you were involved in the development of these COVID-19 vaccines, but I don't think most people realize that you still consult and help vaccine scientists out. So can you explain a little bit about how you were working behind the scenes to help the scientists who were making the COVID vaccines out? Well, uh, of course, um, I should say that if I still had a laboratory, I'd be working on it myself, but since uh, I'm 
too superannuated for that. <laughs> um, uh, I, well, essentially, what I do is consult for many different entities that are developing um, vaccines against the SARS-2 virus that causes COVID-19. And I am uh, delighted to do that because this is a new era in vaccinology. Um, When I started many, many years ago, there were basically only two ways to develop a vaccine. That is either to, uh, to kill the organism and to use the killed organism uh, or to weaken the natural virus or, or bacteria to try to weaken it so that you could uh, inject people with it and have them develop immune responses without getting sick. But now um, it, to, to make a good thing out of a disaster, uh, one can say that this has been a marvelous opportunity for vaccine science uh, to uh, express itself and to learn how to make vaccines in different ways, uh, an opportunity that we probably would rather not have had, mm-hmm. but nevertheless, um, uh, it, it is remarkable what's going on in the vaccine world. Right. And you were able to help uh, guide some of their thinking on the vaccines. Is that what you were doing? Well, I hope so. Yes. <laughs> they were able to learn from your years of experience developing vaccines, which is a wonderful thing. Um, and I think also shows that it's not just scientists, like mad scientists in some laboratory somewhere, you know, throwing darts in the dark, but that they are learning upon knowledge that's been built by many people over many years. Exactly. So one thing I think is really amazing and important is that we've given out 5 million doses in the United States, which, as you noted, is less than the 20 million that had been promoted as um, a possibility to give out by the end of 2020. So we fell, you know, 15 million short of that goal. But we have given out 5 million doses, which gives us a lot of information about what happens once you get a vaccine as far as adverse reactions. And so I, you know, um, they're being given out so fast, I'm having trouble tracking. Do you have any information about what we know about adverse reactions to this vaccine as far as what they are, how common they are, how concerning they are? Yeah, well, of course, as you know, the uh, only two vaccines that are in wide use are both messenger RNA vaccines. And the thing about uh, that technology, which is uh, has shown itself to be very versatile and something that you can uh, use to develop vaccines quickly, but um, the but those vaccines need a a coating of lipid that is a sort of a, of a fatty substance 
that acts both as an adjuvant to increase the responses, but also preserves the messenger RNA. Uh, and the, the result of that is that um, people commonly uh, develop local pain after injection and uh, also um, may have some fever, um, but those are, are short-lived. Uh, what is uh, more concerning, although relatively uncommon, are allergic reactions because um, uh, people uh, may be allergic uh, to the components or one of the components of the lipid envelope of the messenger RNA. Uh, fortunately, that type of reaction occurs immediately. Mm -hmm. And so if you keep people around for 15, 30 minutes and uh, they don't have that uncommon reaction, then they go home and they may have some pain, maybe even a little fever, but they get over that uh, quickly and uh, they become immune uh, to a rate of about 95%, which is remarkable and uh, which of course is what we need to uh, stop the epidemic. You know, I think, Ann, do you know, do you happen to know offhand about how many cases of anaphylaxis or severe allergic reactions we've had out of 5 million? No, I don't have that figure, but from, let's say, my, my impression is that it's fewer than 10 cases. Um, now, the, um, of course, the more vaccinations we do, uh, the, the, the more, the greater the, the risk but th this might be a place to mention a paper that uh, I recently published with uh, Dr. Cody Meissner, which was very s simple, and that is to um, go back uh, 10, 15 years and to look at uh, the reactions to vaccines that were financially recompensed, meaning that, that it was agreed by authorities, by physicians, that the uh, reactions were caused by the vaccine, that they weren't just something that, ha that happened to happen uh, uh, after the, the vaccine was given by just by chance. And it turned out that uh, for all of those routine vaccines, the rate of serious reactions was about one in a million. Mm -hmm. I would guess that that's probably not far from the figure for the mRNA vaccines. And obviously, the risk of disease is much higher. Mm -hmm. So if you, if, um, you do the arithmetic, uh, you're much better off uh, receiving the vaccine. Uh, just parenthetically, I, I keep on saying this, that if I were king, every child would have a course in statistics yeah. uh, before they grow up so that they understood risk, which unfortunately many people do not. 
Yeah, you know, I agree with you. I think that I would love to replace our penchant for driving kids into pre-calculus or calculus and have that endpoint in math instead be statistics. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Be much more practical. Seriously, so much more useful. I took calculus and <laughs> I literally walked out of my classroom, said I'm never going to use that again and threw it out of my brain. And now I look at it and it's Greek. And then just one more adverse reaction, because obviously the rumor mills are always turning, and I just kind of want to get someone on the record. Um, all sorts of people are spreading rumors falsely, because uh, we know that we have proof that people are dying after the vaccine, that this nurse died or that nurse died, and then they pop up and say, "I, you know, the reports of my death have been greatly exaggerated. Um, and so we don't know of any deaths from either COVID vaccine? Not that I know of. There was a famous case where a nurse fainted yeah. after the vaccine, which, you know, which people, people do after, after uh, any uh, uh, painful injection. Uh, and uh, then people claiming that she was dead or, mm -hmm. you know, otherwise disabled. And of course that was completely false. Right. So out of, you know, uh, we would say deaths are probably uh, less than one in five million chance. And I did look up, so we've had about 20 million cases of COVID in the United States so far, and we've lost 350,000 people. And so the chances of, the, the risks of COVID are so far greater than the risks of the vaccine that obviously the vaccine's worth it. Yes, of course. But you know, this is a, a general phenomenon. It's not limited to, to vaccines. Uh, people uh, love stories. And mm -hmm. they, the, the worse the story, the more they like it. Mm -hmm. uh, and unfortunately, um, uh, people's, um, what shall I say, attraction to the truth is much less than their attraction to falsehoods. Mm. I. Yes, absolutely. I think that's a, a sage observation about human nature. And so I, I want to turn to the idea of herd immunity. The term herd immunity, people are getting to know better, but it's becoming better known through the pandemic as a strategy to let everyone get sick and then the pandemic will be over because everyone's immune, which is you know, anathema to public health. Um, but, you know, we know that it actually has its roots in the idea of vaccinating as many people as possible so that people who can't get vaccinated won't encounter a disease and will therefore be protected. So I, I know a lot of people are hoping we can achieve herd immunity through the COVID vaccines. And I also know it's early days and that we can't make any grand statements about that. But can you tell me sort of what the thinking uh, is on is herd immunity achievable through vaccination? And if so, you know, what kind of percentage of the population getting vaccinated are we looking at? Yeah, well, uh, you know, I, I think that question is currently uh, unanswerable, <laughs> excuse me, unanswerable. Uh, but uh, I think that the, the data that we have suggests that the vaccines 
sorry. That's okay. That the vaccines will either eliminate or reduce the amount of virus, even if somebody is exposed and, and, and gets infected. So it's, it's, a, it's a complicated situation because um, we, most vaccines impact on the infection. In other words, they not only protect against the disease, but if somebody does get infected, it minimizes the, the replication of the uh, bacteria or, or, or virus. So um, I think we can hope, uh, reasonably hope for, uh, for herd immunity. But the question of how solid it is or will be remains to be answered. Mm -hmm. In other words, uh, will the vaccines completely turn off uh, uh, the uh, rep reproduction of the virus in a, in a vaccinated person, or will it simply decrease the amount of virus? Those are things that we, uh, we don't yet know. We have to um, uh, have more observations. Mm -hmm. And if I may say so, that was one of the arguments for human challenge studies to mm -hmm. determine the effect of, of vaccination on uh, excretion of virus. So there, there, there is information that we, we need to have in order to really answer um, that question. That being said, if you look at other vaccines with other agents, the general rule is that the vaccination eliminates or decreases excretion of the, of the uh, agent in, qu in question, whether virus or, or bacteria. So therefore, in addition to protecting the individual, one expects vaccines to have an epidemiologic effect, decreasing the transmission from an infected individual, especially if they're vaccinated, to uh, a, an uninfected or unvaccinated person. So the, the question then is an arithmetical question. How, what proportion of the population do you need to vaccinate before the virus is, has difficulty in circulating? And, you know, the fact is we really don't know the answer to that question yet. Mm -hmm. uh, it was originally estimated by uh, Tony Fauci that it would be 60-70%. More recently, he's uh, upped that figure, but frankly, I think he's guessing, mm -hmm. like, like everybody else. And uh, all that can be said for, for certain is that uh, if when the population really becomes well vaccinated, the virus is going to have a lot more trouble in, in circulating. Now, will it be eliminated? I think nobody can really answer that question yet. We just don't know. We will have to see, uh, I, you know, in, in two or three years, we'll be able to answer the question, but we can't answer it now. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And it also makes a lot of sense that people are asking that now because everyone wants this pandemic to be done now. Uh, so being patient to get that information is difficult for all of us. 
Yeah, you know, I, it, it may not be necessary, but looking ahead, far ahead, I could imagine uh, combinations of influenza and uh, SARS-2 vaccines that would be given every year, every two years. I don't know. But um, assuming that SARS-2 becomes endemic, uh, I, I, I could imagine that uh, being necessary. And you know, the, the other point, the related point is, we are talking about vaccinating 8 billion people. Yeah, That's never been done before. And so, you know, let's, let's face it, if we are able to vaccinate the world's population in two or three years, that will be marvelous. That will be great. And uh, if that works, wonderful, but it may be that we will have to keep reinforcing immunity. For example, uh, children, mm -hmm. the, the, you know, what is it? 100, 125 million children are born every year. So we have to think ahead about vaccinating them as mm -hmm. well. And I've, I have wondered if the virus could become sort of one of those childhood illnesses, sort of, in line with maybe hepatitis A, where we vaccinate against it. It's not, it's rarely severe in children, um, but it's often severe in adults. And, you know, we work to yeah. prevent it that way. Well, so actually, uh, I and uh, somebody else drafted an article on that subject, which has not seen the light of day yet. But uh, what we were saying in the article is that, first of all, although most children do okay with the virus, some do get sick, mm -hmm. very sick. So uh, it would not be unreasonable to have routine vaccination of, of children. And, and of course, the related point would be that it would reduce the reservoir mm -hmm. of, of virus. So this is not something for tomorrow, but yeah. let's say for the day after tomorrow, when we have enough people uh, vaccinated, uh, I think it would become a reasonable thing to routinely vaccinate children as, as, as well to uh, keep the virus from getting into the population and becoming, um, uh, let's say, chronic in the, in the population. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. I wanna ask you one more question about herd immunity. So I've done a lot of looking into herd immunity for lots of different diseases. It's really tricky. It's a lot of really difficult math, but, for from what I've seen, usually you need at least 80%, but close to 90% of a population to be vaccinated against any disease to achieve herd immunity. And so, um, you know, the, when Dr. Fauci is saying 60 to 70%, is, is there any illness where you only need 60 or 70% of a population to be vaccinated in order to achieve some amount of herd immunity? 
Well, you know, uh, the, the answer to your question depends on the reproductive number of the uh, agent in question. So when you're talking about measles, you really need virtually 100% right. um, immunity to, uh, uh, to uh, prevent spread. When you're talking about uh, rubella, uh, you probably need something around 90%. Uh, and um, the, the, the question for SARS-2 is as, as yet unanswered, uh, but one can say that even with the new um, variants that are being seen in the UK and in South Africa, the reproductive number is still under two. Mm. So uh, I, I, nobody can be sure at this point, but, but I would say that it wouldn't be surprising to me if something around 70-80% uh, immunity was sufficient to, to, to give herd immunity and to stop uh, circulation. Um, the, uh, you know, the, the, these are questions that really only uh, time and experience yeah. can, can answer for us. And of course, what, what people are concerned about today is whether the virus would mutate to the point where prior immunity would, would give no protection at all. That would be a disaster, of course but I, I hope that won't happen. Yeah, I hope so too. I want to ask you, you mentioned the, the new variants um, that we've seen in the UK and South Africa, and I'm glad you brought that up because the media is reporting that they're far more infectious, but you are talking about how their, um, their reproductivity is still, their R-naught is still under two. So when we're talking about them being more infectious, I, 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 hear, I hear two things. I hear the media freaking out, and then I hear doctors concerned but not freaking out. And so can you explain a little bit about why doctors are concerned but not freaking out? So far, as far as I know, and of course, you know, the situation is evolving. So what I'm saying may be wrong tomorrow. <laughs> but uh, so far as I know, the uh, uh, increased infectivity is going to increase infections by you know maybe 50 60 percent but uh, that uh, so so that means that um, more people will get infected by the 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 new circulating viruses that were infected before. So coming in contact with an infected individual will be a greater risk than it, than it was before. But uh, we haven't seen changes in the clinical expression of mm -hmm. infection. So it doesn't seem as if the disease is worse. Now, the, the, the scientific issue, which is really critical, is will those mutations change the immune response so that people who have had the virus before again become susceptible. Mm -hmm. And uh, the only answer that I can get, well, first of all, of course, the answer is I don't know. Right. But, but 
um, the, the technical answer from my point of view would be the following. Virtually all the vaccines depend on what's called the spike protein. And the spike protein um, can, can mutate, there can be changes in it. But there's a particular region of the spike protein called the receptor binding domain. And that is the part that attaches to human cells through the angiotensin uh, receptor. Um, if that changes, we could be in trouble. Mm -hmm. uh, but if that doesn't change, uh, I, I, I think the vaccines will still work against uh, the new variants. Just to help us with a little bit of arithmetic. So if I, with this new variant, if I am infected with the new variant, I am likely to infect how many other people versus if I'm infected with the old variant, I'm likely to infect how many people. So what's that difference in how many people are infected? Well, if, if, <laughs> if under standard conditions you are, or with a standard virus, you can infect 10 people Roughly speaking, it appears that you could infect 16 or 17 people right. with a new variant. That would be pretty infectious. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned before the new technologies and advancements in making vaccines. And the, the newness is exciting. For some people, it's also intimidating and frightening. I think people have always had these dual reactions to any advancement in society that it's both exciting and frightening. But I think that you and I both tip to the, this is really an exciting time in vaccinology, an exciting time in history to watch what we're able to do scientifically. And I'm wondering if you see the mRNA technology being used to develop new or redevelop old vaccines and what other technologies you think might be being developed right now that maybe the rest of us aren't paying attention to? Well, so uh, the mRNA technology is being applied to other vaccines. And I've been well, also consulting about, about that. Uh, so it, it is versatile. Uh, it um, uh, and and it's something that is is relatively you can do it relatively quickly because once you have the sequence of the organism, you can duplicate that with a messenger RNA. Um, but that's not the 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 only technology. Actually, there's a, a, another. RNA technology called self-amplifying RNA, <clears throat> which um, may turn out to be useful. Uh, but, <coughs> excuse me, uh, but there's also uh, a uh, somewhat older technology based on DNA plasmids. In other words, uh, uh, taking the sequence of, uh, of an agent that you want to vaccinate against and transforming that into a DNA molecule. And if, if that is given by intradermal in injection, 
that is also highly uh, immunogenic. And there is uh, at least uh, one uh, candidate for COVID-19 mm. uh, that is um, made using that technology. And the, the other, um, another technology is the use of virus-like particles, small particles of protein to make uh, vaccines. And that is also uh, looking very uh, useful. The, the human papillomavirus vaccine, in a sense, is the first expression of that uh, technology. Uh, and then there are the so-called vectors, mm -hmm. where you're using uh, a, a virus which is harmless, um, but which can carry information for something that you want to immunize against. And that, those are um, the, the AstraZeneca vaccine, the, the Johnson & Johnson mm -hmm. vaccine against COVID-19 are, are, are using that technology. And the, the Russian uh, vaccine is also using that, that technology. So what we're seeing um, uh, is sort of all hands on deck uh, for um, COVID-19. Uh, that is all the, the potential technologies being used, including, by the way, uh, attenuation, mm -hmm. which, uh, you know, when, when I was making vaccines, it was something that you did laboriously mm -hmm. over a period of time. But now what you can do is take the sequence of, uh, let's say, a virus and mutate it and make you make your own sequence so to speak instead of letting nature uh, do it or waiting for nature to do it sure. so that that's being there is a, a an experimental vaccine that's under clinical trial now to huh. determine whether that might work and uh might have the advantages of giving um a mucosal antibody as well as right. serum antibody wow that is really cool that's kind of, I'm sorry, you just sort of blew my mind because I'm thinking, you know, if you can have more control over the attenuation process, that could be a real game changer for all, yes. all sorts of viruses. Absolutely. Very cool. I have uh, one last question for you. And this is another math question. I'm wondering if you have ever estimated between rubella vaccine, the rotavirus vaccine, and every vaccine you've ever consulted on, approximately how many lives you think you've saved. <laughs> and I'll just say, I want to say this because um, I was talking to our friend, Dr. Alan Hindman, and he said, you know, if you're an oncologist, you can point to a person and say, I've saved that person's life. But if you work in vaccines or public health, you can say, I've saved lives, I just don't know whose. And I, we know you've saved lives, and I think it's, it's hard because, you know, I can't say Stanley Plotkin saved Fred Johnson's life. So I want, I'm wondering if you've ever done the math on how many that is. No, frankly, I never have, and um, maybe I should, but um, the, I think the, the point that you're making is that prevention is better 
than treatment. Mm-hmm. And um, everybody knows that. Every physician knows that. But of course, if you have somebody who is ill before you, uh, in front of you, you, you want to help them recover. And that's a great feeling. I, you know, I, I practiced pediatrics in the past, and I, I know uh, what a wonderful feeling it is to know that you've saved the child's life or, or improved the, the, the child's life. Uh, but I am also conscious, as you imply, that I've done a, a lot more good by preventing disease than by treating it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, one, one hopes that people realize that, but probably they don't think about it much uh, because... Um, if you're not ill, you're probably not going to think a lot about what it might be like uh, if you if you were ill. Mm-hmm. But you know, that's this goes back to Louis Pasteur. Mm-hmm. I mean, pre- prevention is is better than treatment. There's no doubt about that. Right, and I I like how you know you're thinking about not only just preventing death but also improving the quality of life through vaccination i think that's important too sure well i just want you to know that i am grateful for every life that you've saved even if i don't know their names i know it's been a lot um you are a tremendously generous and good human being and i'm so i'm so humbled to know you and um I'm so humbled also to, as I said, be living in this point in history where we're able to respond to a pandemic through science. Well, thank you. And uh, I, I think you're right to point out the, the uh, what shall I say, the, the good part of what's happening. I mean, we're living through a terrible era mm-hmm. and, and yet the human response has been wonderful. Yeah. It really has. So I, I, I think we can take some comfort in that, uh, despite all the, 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 the death and disease that's going on. I think so, too. Thank you so much for joining me You're today. welcome. Okay. Have a great day. Thanks. Same to you. Bye-bye. And thank you to all of you who have joined us today for listening. Again, our call to action is go out Stop misinformation and spread enthusiasm. We're so excited to be here with you in this moment. My name is Karen Ernst, and I'm the Executive Director of Voices for Vaccines. You can find us at voicesforvaccines.org. And I'm Nathan Boonstra, General Pediatrician at Langtron's Hospital in Des Moines. You can find me on Twitter at PedsGeekMD or look for me on Facebook or my blog, PedsGeekMD.com.